welcome to the ADHD Untangled podcast. My name is Rosie and I have ADHD. And like many other ADHDers, the majority of my life has felt chaotic to say the very least, due to what I describe as having a tangled brain. Let's get untangled and show the world what we are made of. Trigger warning. The Untangled podcast does cover some sensitive topics that could be triggering to some. So please be sure to read the full description before listening in. Please note that the majority of the guests on the Untangled podcast do have ADHD, including myself, which means we will interrupt each other, forget what we're saying and go off topic. Hello, Untanglers. I am very excited to be inviting you to a very special event. If you are ready to rewrite your ADHD story and get ready to say yes to embracing your ADHD and untangling the incredible person that you are, then join me in October for ADHD Awareness Month for our very first free live virtual event, Untangling ADHD from Struggles to Strengths. This will be taking place on Friday, the 6th of October. And I will be bringing you the very best of ADHD Untangled to life. And I'll be joined by a star-studded ADHD Untangled lineup full of renowned ADHD educators, researchers, activists and influencers to give you everything you need to feel inspired to turn your ADHD struggles into strengths. For more information, you can find the link in the notes of this podcast or you could head to my Instagram, ADHD underscore untangled and click the link in my bio. We cannot wait to meet you. Hello, Untanglers. Welcome back to your episode of ADHD Untangled. My name is Rosie and I am your host. So today we have a very special guest and one that I have been wanting this podcast since the day that I started it. He's a bit of a hero in our community in my eyes and his name is Professor James Brown. Ah! So he is one of the podcast hosts of the ADHD Adults podcast which is absolutely amazing if you haven't listened to it but I'm sure that you have. He also runs the ADHD Adults UK charity which we are big fans of here and the proud husband of a previous Untangled guest, the amazing Mrs. ADHD. And they're such a wonderful couple. They make me smile so, so much. So James agreed to chat to me today and he shares very authentically his personal ADHD story from struggle and then through to where he is now. And that's one of the main reasons I really adore James so much is because he is so authentic. He is so open about his struggles, you know, with mental health, with his ADHD. And I know how powerful that can be for others that are listening to him you know by sharing our stories it really really does help others feel like they're not alone and also gives people hope that things can change and get better but one of the reasons as well I reached out to James in particular is I want to cover hormones ADHD and hormones due to going through my own struggles at the moment so I'm going to do a little bit of a series with different people on this topic and including sharing my own experiences but James studied hormones for 20 years so he has so much knowledge on this topic and in relation to ADHD. I know this is a big 
theme and a big pattern we are seeing in our community. I'm talking to friends about it, clients, it's everywhere. And it can be so destructive when we are experiencing hormone imbalance or, you know, going through different stages of our lives where our hormones are changing. So it was just really great to talk to James about this and even talk to a man about hormones who really got it and knew exactly what hormones do and even said hormones are responsible for everything. So yes, when we are at different parts in our cycle or, you know, going through different changes in our hormones and we feel, you know, tired or we feel moody, we don't feel sexy, we don't feel confident and we say, oh, I think it's my hormones. Yes, it probably is. And I took so much comfort in hearing a scientist say that. So I hope that you get a lot from this episode. He talks a lot about the science behind it. And then in relation to, you know, how things can look in real life when these things are happening. So let's get untangled and show the world what we are made of. Normally, we'd just start the podcast with the struggle, which we know there are many, but your story, really, your ADHD story and the lead up to diagnosis and sort of how you got there. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I was told, God, probably seven years before I got diagnosed, I probably had it by Alex, who's my kind of co-host on, on my podcast, the ADHD Adults, and he got diagnosed and he phoned me up and said, I've just been diagnosed with ADHD and you're way more ADHD than I am. And we both kind of laughed and and I, at the time, as somebody who taught neurophysiology, did not know adults could have ADHD, which was, I, I felt a bit shameful. And I looked it up and I did all the online tests, the ASRS and all the ticks were on the right hand side. And I thought that's interesting. But then I did nothing about it. And partly that was due to, to medication hesitancy. I had this weird cognitive dissonance in my head, which is, I hate myself but I don't want to take medication that's going to change me. So I just dropped the idea. Just did, I just thought, you know what? I'm, I thought I was coping, Rosie. <laughs> I wasn't. I thought I was you know, doing well because I was getting promoted at work because I was earning more money, but I was an absolute hot mess inside. I was you know, always burnt out. I was doing things for other people and not for me. And then eventually in 2021, in the second lockdown, as a university lecturer, when teaching moved online, it was seven day a week, 10 hours a day, and just looking at a computer screen instead of a room full of people you're lecturing. And it, when it, ironically, it was when that finished at the end of teaching in that first day off, my, I just collapsed mentally and physically empty. And I'd been talking to Alex about ADHD during that three or four months because I started to realize I'd, I probably do need help with this, but that was the point where I thought, and that was what, December 2020, I thought, I've, I've got to get help. So at the time, I didn't know that Right to Choose existed. So I thought, I knew I knew the, the the NHS waiting times were long. So I thought, I'll go private. And, you know, I had to get help off my mum because I've got lots of debt, which is common with people with ADHD. Yeah. But I paid for a private diagnosis because I, I needed it quickly. I was, I was absolutely, I was in a very bad place. And then getting that diagnosis really, just changed my life, changed my job. It changed my focus. It it made me understand myself. It allowed me to drop all, not all of it, but a lot of the baggage I had of years of thinking you're just rubbish and forgetful and unreliable and flaky, et cetera. And I suddenly realized there's a reason that I am the person that I am. So it was kind of a long journey within a very sped up process at the end. Yeah. We see that a lot, don't we, about the mm. when it was COVID and everyone was at home and, you yeah. know, 
because you know we didn't have the distractions and we couldn't just keep busy and ignore what's going on do you think that was the case for you do you think you were just yeah. keeping yourself going without you know just like, I think pausing yeah to realize what was going on I think I think because I didn't have time to pause because it it was it was just work flying at you all the time. It was firefighting, mm. you know, in in work terms. And if you, if you look at it's interesting if you look at lockdown, lockdown actually caused ADHD like symptoms in people without ADHD. Yeah. And that's because we all to some extent seek novelty and dopamine and new things so everybody's suddenly being kind of imprisoned a little bit in their home and not getting to see people and do new things can be can be you know detrimental to our mental health etc but for those of us who were undiagnosed ADHD it just everything got amplified because all of a sudden the things that you might find rewarding you can't do the people that you might see that you might find rewarding you can't see and you you're just in the same room in the same house with the same person sorry Sam if she's listening um <laughs> all all the time and that there's no novelty there's no reward there's no dopamine there's nothing new and therefore symptoms just became so much more apparent for people at the same time as people started to be aware that ADHD was a thing it was this convergence of TikTok largely kind of showing people videos on ADHD lockdown and one or two celebrities announcing they got diagnosed that created this kind of wave of people suddenly realizing oh hang on a minute that 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 sounds and feels like me yeah and you know when you said you was doing really you know you're doing work work you kept getting promoted Mm. how do you think you know some of us with ADHD it's like the opposite you know we struggled academically and so do you think it meant that you were working twice as hard to get those promotions? Is that why you experienced burnout all the time? How was it showing up for you there? Like, cause you- uh, that's, a, that's a good question. See, normally what I do is to downplay it and say, oh, I was in the right place at the right time and I failed upwards, et cetera. And I'm going to try not to do that. I'm going to try and be emotionally honest. Yeah. I One of the things with education and with employment, with ADHD, that is so important hmm. is – if you can find something, a subject, a topic, an activity that you find rewarding, you'll engage with it. So for me, growing up as a as an undiagnosed child with ADHD, biology and health and medicine was the only thing I was interested in. You know, football a little bit and mates, but there was one book I used to read as a child, and that was the Collins Illustrated Family Encyclopedia of Health and Disease. And I read that book from cover to cover. I knew what I knew what a keloid scar was as a seven year old, which is far too geeky, even wow. for Alex. That's far too geeky. <laughs> But I was I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with health and disease. I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand, even as a child, because I had migraines, which are an ADHD thing, and other things. I wanted to understand them. Desperately wanted to be a medical doctor, but didn't go to a good school. And you know, my my undiagnosed ADHD wasn't supported. There were there weren't kind of Senko teams. There weren't systems in place to, to even account for dyslexia back then. And therefore, I didn't get. The education I needed to, to to do medicine, so I ended up doing biology and then by moving into biomedical science and doing a PhD. And the only reason I could do any of that was because I found the, the subject rewarding. Yeah. It's a little bit like somebody who is creative, a musician or an artist. If if they find that activity rewarding, they'll they'll do it. They'll be able to do it. They'll be able to spend time on it. They'll be able to get better at it. So the reason I 
even got into academia was because I, I just really found the subject interesting and still do find it fascinating, which is why now with ADHD, my my hyper-focus is just learning everything I can about the, the biology, the psychology, the behavioral science, the epidemiology, everything about ADHD, because now it's a new thing that's health-related for me to learn about. Mm. In terms of the kind of the, the later promotions and that, a lot of it was people-pleasing. A lot of it was saying yes. And, and, you know, we are often in organizations. This is something I learned relatively recently. There's a, there's a guy called is it Andy Tate. No, God, not him. I can't remember the guy's name. Andrew Grant. He's, he did a TED talk on organizational psychology. And at work, there are often three types of people, givers, takers, and matches. And I did a workshop the other day with a crowd of 250 people. And 70% of them self-identified as givers. Now, givers are people who take on other people's work, work extra hours, take on responsibility, largely because, you know, we, we feel we have to or we should do or that something will fail if we don't do it. And I was a people pleaser. I was a giver. Mm. And there's there's kind of another phrase people use in employment, which is often if you want something done, give it to a busy person because they are mm. the people that get stuff done. So I got promoted because I just did stuff. And I, I did stuff at the expense of my mental health, my relationship, my physical health, my friendships, because it ended up, I just worked. Also, obviously, impulsively kept on starting charities and doing other stuff as well, which meant that I didn't really have that much of a life. And as I got towards the end of my career in academia, when I was kind of about to be made a professor, but I just realized, do I want this? I mean, do I want to exist in the next 30 years? Do I want to carry on doing this, being unhappy, working my ass off? For people that don't really value me doing stuff that the subject's interesting, but all of the admin and the unrewarding stuff I didn't. So that that external success, you know, the 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 job title, the the salary, that's it's difficult to say this because some people may not have a job and this is a very privileged position to be in. But that yeah. external success is not as important as internal success, it's not as important as feeling happy, fulfilled, loved that you're doing what you want to do. And it's difficult. And I'm very lucky that I am now in a situation where I can combine the two. But mm. yeah, I, it was all at the expense of, of me. It was all for other people. It's like we have like a, I think we see a lot of ADHD is that strong desire for approval for so long. Mm, yeah. You know, like when External we're undiagnosed. Yeah, yeah. And it's like an addiction almost of like just wanting to be approved all the time and yeah. you know validated and seen. And what you're describing there is what I've sort of been working on with clients and myself is like it seems like we need me we say we need reward as well but I think yeah. it comes down to like interest and meaning isn't it it's when we find what's meaningful to us so now yeah you've got that attachment to the ADHD as well in terms of what you enjoy doing anyway but there's more meaning yeah. behind it as well oh yeah absolutely absolutely I mean I, I one, one of the reasons I also got promoted was randomly I did a television program for the BBC because they were desperately looking for a scientist at the last mm -hmm. minute. And because it wasn't terrible, they then phoned me up a month later and said, do you want to do another one? And then I ended up doing lots of television stuff. Wow. And the university is like that because it gets them on television for free. So I did kind of 20 or 30 programs for the BBC, ITV and that, and found that really fun. Didn't mm -hmm. feel any pressure of it. And that, that ties in now to kind of doing a podcast and doing talks and just seeing it as a fun activity. But that that meaning is really important because at university as an academic, we often, as a researcher, we often kind of fabricate meaning. We'll say, oh, my research is impactful because in, t in 10 or 20 years time, it might 
turn into a new drug or we might understand mm-hmm. a disease better but actually working with people who have ADHD and seeing real world impact so somebody getting a diagnosis because of the charity we set up you know helping them somebody you know being more effective at work because they're being coached or somebody's relationship being better because they've come to a talk and yeah. now they understand it that is meaning that is impact and that it's it's like a high that for somebody that Am I allowed to swear, by the way? Yes, you can swear all you <laughs> for want. Some, for somebody that fucking hates himself with the burning fire of a thousand suns, to just have 10 seconds of, I made that person's life better, it's seductive, it's incredible. And you're right, it, it, it's meaning that then pushes you forward. Yeah, and you're doing amazing, amazing things. And Thank um, you. And I hope you do acknowledge that. I know, I know you always, you know... You getting better. Lay things down, and but yeah, I really hope you are because you're doing amazing, amazing things. Talk us through that, how you got to where you are with your amazing podcast. And when did that moment in your head sort of go, right, now I'm going to go and do this? Like how soon after your diagnosis? Because, you know, we're quite impulsive, good, right? <laughs> No, we, we are. We are. It's interesting. So so at first I set everything up with Alex Connor. I'd known Alex for years. Mm-hmm. We'd been, we'd worked together at Warwick Medical School. Well, I say worked, we'd sat and drank tea most of the day doing absolutely fuck all work for, for about two <laughs> years at Warwick Medical School. And because I hate, I hated probably 99% of academics at mm. every university I worked at. He was one of the only two or three people that I thought I like them. I want to spend time with them. So we stepped, kept in touch. We were very close friends. And after I got diagnosed, we, we kind of had a chat and we, we just said, we should do, there's nothing out there. You know, if you're lucky, you get a diagnosis, you may get offered medication. And if you want it, you get that. And then off you go out into the world, understand yourself, explain it to your partner and to your employers and, and, you know, adapt to, you know, identity. So it started off with just a simple, we need an online community. So we set up an Instagram account, first of all, and, and a Twitter account, and we kind of post bits and bobs. And then because I'd, I'd set up a charity previously as a homeless outreach charity with Mrs. ADHD and my wife, I knew how to set up a charity. So I very much thought we need to turn this into a charity. I think Alex was a bit less... I wouldn't say interested, but I think for him, it was just about having, creating help for people. So, but we, we co-founded a charity called ADHD Adult UK, which is still running and it's now grown so big that we're having to get lots of people on board to help us with that, but that's a good thing. Yeah. And it took, it took a while actually, you know, I, it's, it's odd. You said we are impulsive and I am impulsive, but I have this, a weird, I don't think of my ADHD in terms of positives because it's impossible to separate separate out what is a skill you just might have and what's an ADHD trait. But I'm a quick thinker mm-hmm. and I will weigh up the pros and cons of something very quickly and make a decision. And I remember saying to Alex, we need to do a podcast. And it took three months from that point to actually get him to kind of to agree to everything and set it up. And then, so we, so we started a podcast, which at the time we had the same name as the charity ADHD Adult UK, which is, which Alex, it's the wrong name. Alex basically booked the wrong Twitter account. It was meant to be Adult ADHD UK. So even the name of the charity is ADHD. And we started a podcast, just the two of us at first. And the idea was we only had two rules. One, be authentic and two, don't compromise. So just be ourselves and do do it for us. Now we're going back and looking at that. We weren't being authentic. We were trying to be posh and professional, which is ridiculous. (laughs) Now we've settled into being who we are. It's much more authentic, but... We did We did it on the basis that we didn't really mind if people listened because we enjoyed doing it. And then gradually it took about nine months before it really started to get a decent listenership. And then it just kind of skyrocketed and 
became a thing and we brought Mrs. ADHD on board because she's just massive entertainment value. She's amazing, um, yeah. She is. I mean, she is. She's genuinely incredible. I mm-hmm. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. And then, so we've now got this this kind of growing, I suppose, presence or platform, which is really important actually, because as a kind of middle-aged, middle-class white male, I have social power to say things. I can say things which other people might not feel it's safe to do. So mm. I also don't really care what people think about me in most circumstances. So I will go out and talk about ADHD and fight for people with ADHD and have those difficult discussions. And that's partly the power of what we've created is is two people that have a voice yeah. and are then using that voice to try and help other people. Yeah, it's incredible. And what I love about how you've done it is, you know, I love hearing about the science and, you know, as I said at school, I struggled to learn, you know, stuff, mm. <laughs> most things. But I really have an interest in it, especially when it's meaningful to you, like, you know, ADHD. And so you share like actual facts, Mm. but you do it in a way, again, that comes across so authentic, but also with humor. And I think that's why that, you know, because you know, with ADHD, we like things to be interested. So you sort of tick all those boxes and you've made it for like people like me who may not, you know, pick up a book and want to read or be able to do it, like learn so much. And I think that's just so powerful that you've done that. I, th- I think it wasn't really by design, but Alex and I had both ended up in the same path, which is science communication. So we were both, bi- you know, biology slash biomedical scientists working in medical schools and teaching, you know, all these really kind of arcane anatomy, physiology type stuff. But we were also both doing science communication. Mine was largely television. Alex's was largely doing talks, going around the country, giving talks. So we both learned how to take complicated information and turn it into something that's that's consumable because yeah. that's often what academics can't do. And <laughs> we we both think we're funny. Let, well, I'll be honest. We, we both think funny. we're funny, and and we're comp- we're competitive. So we we like to try yeah. and be funnier than each other. So going back as we have been and watching the first few episodes, they are quite muted. But you start to get to episode three or four, and the, the swearing increases and the little digs at each other increases. But that's yeah. what Alex and I were always like. What we are on the podcast is probably just 10% of an amplification of what we're like in real life. He will, I'm not even joking, just to wind me up. So, um, you know, the kind of salt bay sprinkling action with the fingers that, that people do when they're cooking. Yeah. Alex Alex knows that that annoys me because he once did it when we were at medical school and he was explaining to a friend, oh yeah, I was making some food last night. And he did the little finger action. I went, oh, for fuck's sake. And as soon as he saw that that annoyed me, he would send me text messages or WhatsApps with pictures of him doing that in his kitchen just to just to wind me up. In fact, he would even when he was out with his wife, say things to her like, oh, this would really annoy James and then never tell me. So we've had this dynamic for years of just wanting to wind each other up and in a, in a lo- very loving way to get at each other. And that very quickly just became the bedrock for the for the podcast, which is two people that kind of do know what they're talking about but are doing it in a way which de-weaponizes or defangs a lot of ADHD. My approach has always been tell everybody everything. There is mm-hmm. nothing about my ADHD in my life, including the most embarrassing kind of sexual anecdotes and, and failures and things that are ADHD related that I won't share because if there's one person that hears that and goes, oh God, me too, then, exactly. yeah. then, then, that's, that's, then that's really powerful. And that's kind of what we do is we just we show our ADHD – very bare. We try and make it funny. It doesn't work for everybody. Our latest review was one star and it said, try to find a good British podcast, 
However, the three hosts are failed comedians who still think they've got a chance and the swearing was just as try-hard as their attempts at comedy. And I love our bad reviews. I want to put it on a T-shirt because I think that's amazing. But most people... Most people kind of get it and, and feel, feel like they've found, you know, they found something that they can relate to, I think. Exactly. I've, I just absolutely, I love, I've always loved it and I can't get enough of it. So I think you're doing a fab Thank job. Thank you. You know, when you talk back, when you spoke back about your struggles with your ADHD, I just want to ask, do you think, because a lot of people mention like relationships or their mental health, what yeah. do you think your biggest, it costs you the most, you know, <sighs> undiagnosed ADHD? There's a, there's a lot I could talk. I mean, I was single for ten years because I was so scared to ever ask anybody. I I, had, I thought nothing of myself. I was completely. I, I I think I was devoid of any personality until I was 27 years old. Now ADHD is associated with a neurodevelopmental delay, so we are normally until about 18 or 20, a, a couple of years behind in terms of our social skills and yeah. things like that. But I, I wasn't a whole person until my late 20s, and I think if I was going to say. ADHD took something from me I'd say it's my 20s I'd yeah. say it's that period where I would have been I mean believe me I've made up for it since but <laughs> there, there is there is a period where my lifestyle would have been that like that of my friends I'm a I'm a I'm an old raver Rosie but I was late to kind of raving and that whole culture because in my 20s I just I couldn't I didn't have the confidence to go places and be around people so it cost me my 20s but the, the kind of asterisk is, and I was asked this, I think we were asked this on our 100th episode or something. It was, you know, would you, you know, would you kind of give up your ADHD or something? And I always used to say, yeah, I'd give it up tomorrow. But now my answer is actually, it's worth me going through that mm. to help other people. It, it gives it meaning. So the stuff that the, the lost decade of my life now has meaning because I can use that to help other people. So I think as much as it did cost me my 20s mm. I can use that as a motivation for making sure that as many people as I can possibly help can be helped I'm gonna move on to more so we call this part the strength where we start to like educate you know our guests mm -hmm. and sort of inspire them and empower them to move forward my first question is because you know you're the scientist you've got all this information um, which we all love to learn um, but there's so much mixed stuff out there and we don't know what to trust and what not to trust. So for those that are listening that might be new to, you know, to the ADHD journey or someone in their family has just been diagnosed, mm -hmm. the ADHD brain, from a scientist's point of view, what is actually happening in an ADHD brain? This is where it starts to get interesting. And this is part of the reason that there's so much myth and stigma about ADHD. Technically, there's no such thing as a neurotypical brain or an ADHD brain. Mm. Now, now, the reason for that is because we are neurodiverse, even as a neurodivergent group. That means we all have slightly different brains. Mm. And, theref and therefore, all we can say from masses and masses of research is that we know there are certain parts of the brain which develop slightly differently. That's where the term neurodevelopmental comes from. ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. And we know that those parts of the brain often use uh, chemicals or neurotransmitters called dopamine and noradrenaline and others to talk to each other. So in general, we know that the brain is less active. We know that parts of the brain don't communicate as well with each other, mm. but it's quite a general thing. There are lots of studies looking at specific areas of the brain or specific what we call networks. So that could be the front part talking to the back part, talking to a part in the middle what we know is that those networks in general aren't as well connected and don't communicate as well. But the problem is 
because neuroscience and particularly the imaging of the brain is very expensive, all the studies that look at this look in small populations. So 10 people with ADHD, 10 people without, we scanned this one part of the brain, it was different. But you can't generalize that to everybody. And as I've said, we're all slightly different. So one of the reasons there isn't an objective test, you can't stick your head in an MRI scanner, have someone look at it and say, yep, that's an ADHD brain, is we are all a bit different. And the differences are sometimes very small. But in general, the parts of the brain that regulate three things, and that is executive functions. So these are the higher level thinking skills like planning, organizing, attention, cognitive inhibition, time management, working memory, etc. Those That part of the brain is pretty much always different in terms of its function. Emotional regulation. So this isn't in the diagnostic criteria or the name, but most of us have issues with rejection. Um, we call that rejection sensitivity. Most of us have issues with emotional regulation. Yeah. And therefore, the areas that are involved in emotion are slightly different. And there's something, and this is very new, it's only been shown in the last couple of months, and that's something called a lack of neural pruning. <laughs> so a bit like you prune a hedge. Yeah. When we get to about um, adolescence, so 16, 17 years old, something like that, in most people, the brain prunes any nerves that aren't needed. So any connections that aren't needed, they're unnecessary, they get cut off. That doesn't happen in ADHD. And this is one of the, the only really big trials. So more than 1,500 people with ADHD had their brain scanned and it showed that they didn't undergo this neural pruning. So that means we have extra connections right. between some parts of the brain that people with ADHD don't. So those are the three general things, the parts of the brain that regulate the day-to-day -day functioning, including attention and inhibition, which is stopping ourselves from doing stuff, whether it's saying, acting, or moving, which is where the, the hyperactivity comes in, emotions, and these, these kind of aberrant extra connections. Sorry if I've got this wrong. But you know when you talk about the pruning, is that when yeah. I've obviously done, I've had some studies, it was to do with children's development, and there was a yeah. stage when it you get to, I think it was like when you're 14 or around that stage, and they were saying that's when they start to get rid of certain neural pathways that you're not going to use basically yeah absolutely absolutely is that that is that that, that it's, it's that exactly yeah it's ex it's exactly that it's the process of removing neurons which are the nerves in the brain that are no longer needed or useful oh. and and if that doesn't happen what happens is you've then got communication issues because nerves that aren't needed or useful are still there and they're still in contact with other nerves and other parts of the brain yeah. when i was learning about that it was like when they say um you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. But in within yeah. our brains, that can tend to not happen. So we end up with more when you'd think that'd be a good thing, right? <laughs> it, it, it comes down to efficiency. So the brain has a limited amount of energy it can use. You know, there, there are a limited amount of neurotransmitters. The mm. brain works in a... If you've got a football team mm. that's got 11 players and all those players know their role yeah. and all of a sudden you throw on an extra five players who don't know their role or how to play football God, that yeah. football team is not going to work as well and it's a little bit like that it's not efficient so parts of the brain which in somebody without ADHD which have streamlined themselves to just have the connections and the neurons that are needed will work better but in, in a brain where all these leftover nerves that developed but weren't needed are still there can have an impact on how the brain functions. Oh, so interesting because I, I do hear you know often people debating whether you know we are told and we know that we are born with ADHD tell us what the facts are around that because I think people still tend to debate it and 
believe that that's not there's, true. Scientifically, there's no debate. It's not even debatable. Right. There, there are masses and masses of studies. If anyone wants to, to read a really boring scientific document, but one that's incredible, mm. then just Google consensus statement ADHD. And there are two big scientific studies, one by the World ADHD Federation and one by the European ADHD Association. And they both basically list what we know about ADHD. And what we know is that ADHD is roughly 80% genetic. What that means is that 80% of the risk for developing ADHD is in our genes. Mm -hmm. And there are thousands of different genetic mutations, which on their own probably wouldn't do anything. But if you have enough of them, say 100 or 200 of these mutations, that lays the foundation for your brain developing differently. But ADHD is rarely solely genetic. So what normally happens is you have this genetic predisposition, lots of mutations, which collectively can allow a brain to develop differently. And then an environmental trigger, and that could be trauma, it could be exposure to so toxins in the environment or in the womb, it could be severe institutional deprivation, but that environmental trigger plus the genetics then leads to ADHD developing. In some exceptionally rare cases, it's either purely genetic or purely environmental. You're not old enough, Rosie, but I can remember back in the 80s, pictures of Romanian orphanages under Ceausescu where there were children who were kept in isolation on their own, never kind of saw or touched a person. And that level of severe institutional, that severe deprivation can on its own lead to ADHD if a young enough child is placed in that deprivation. And equally, there are these really rare cases of genetic ADHD, but because there's no one ADHD gene, regardless yeah. of what you read on the internet, there's lots of different genes. It's normally a combination of our genes and our environment. And that's why for most people with ADHD, if you look around your family, because we can smell our own, you'll notice <laughs> one or two people and think, hang on. Yeah. And if you, if you have ADHD, all of your first degree relatives are five to seven times more likely to have ADHD than a member of the general public. So it's, it is something that we are not just born with, often pre-born with in terms of our genetics. Yeah. Thank you for clearing that up. Hello Untanglers, my name is Rosie Turner and I am the host of the ADHD Untangled podcast and I'm also an ADHD coach. I spent most of my life asking myself, what the hell is wrong with you? Struggling with the simple things in life that others could seem to grasp so easily and never understanding why I often felt like I was never able to reach my full potential and constantly fighting between who I thought I had to be in this world whilst having a deeper knowing that my life wasn't representing who I really was. I suffered badly, depressed, lost, confused and tangled. If you are ready to change your story and start working with your ADHD brain instead of against it, head over to my Instagram, ADHD underscore untangled or my website, untangledco.com, to book your free discovery coaching call with me now. Let's get untangled and show the world what we are made of. I also want you to go through dopamine in regards to ADHD, because this was one of the biggest revelations for me when I first got diagnosed. And I think it answered a lot of my questions to what was going on before. <laughs> yeah. So the way in which the brain works is that the... The different nerves, the neurons that make the brain, you've got 100 billion neurons mm. in the brain and they're, they're organized in structures. And 
in order for them to communicate with each other, so to pass a signal, it's a little bit like a, a again, Christ, I'm showing my age, circuit board on a computer, let's say that. They're, these neurons are connected, but they don't actually touch each other. So there's a tiny little gap, about 20 thousandths of a meter across. And when one nerve wants to communicate with another nerve, it releases a chemical. And we call that a neurotransmitter. So neuro meaning nerve, transmitter meaning signal. And it's a little bit like um, a key going into a lock. So that neurotransmitter leaves the first neuron. It travels across this tiny little gap. And then it binds to or fits into its receptor, a bit like a lock. And once it does that, it unlocks that receptor and that allows the next neuron to pass the signal along. Now, dopamine is one of these neurotransmitters. It's involved in lots of different things. It's involved in movement, which is why people with Parkinson's um, struggle with excess movements because it's a, a dopaminergic or a dopamine issue. But it's also importantly involved in pleasure in satisfaction and something called reward. And that is, we've already mentioned this before, central to ADHD. Yeah. If you want to do a task, you need to be motivated to do it. Mm-hmm. And everything in life is a task, Rosie. We've chatted before about this. Everything's a task. Mm-hmm. Going to the shops is a task, but equally having sex is a task. Mm-hmm. Or if you're my wife, if you're my wife, an ordeal. <laughs> and therefore, if you need to be motivated to do a task, that motivation comes from reward and that reward comes from dopamine. So we behaviors that we repeat are repeated because our brain finds them rewarding. Now in ADHD, the reward center of the brain doesn't work properly. And that's largely because dopamine either doesn't stick around long enough or it doesn't work properly. So therefore, that's one of the reasons we struggle with engaging with tasks that our brain doesn't find rewarding, because if we've got no motivation to do a task, you're not going to do it. So dopamine isn't the only neurotransmitter involved. We know that noradrenaline is and possibly serotonin and one or two others, but dopamine is generally accepted as the neurotransmitter most people know about. It's involved in pleasure, whether that's from food, sex, drugs, rock and roll, And it also regulates and communicate or helps other parts of the brain communicate for more functional things. And our dopamine generally, like I say, it either doesn't work properly. So it's like a key that's been a little bit bent. So it doesn't Mm. unlock the lock or there are little transporters or plug holes, which will suck the dopamine away to get rid of it before it has a chance to. So effectively, it's not often that we have less dopamine. It's either that it doesn't stick around or it doesn't work properly. So if we had, for instance, just say we exercise and we got a bit of dopamine from our exercise, we wouldn't have that post-exercise feeling necessarily as long as someone else. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, again, we we are are all slightly different. But if you look at how ADHD is treated, the medications that treat it all cause Mm. dopamine release as well as other neurotransmitters. And if you look at, again, I'm, you know, I'm open about, I've been a substance abuser for most of my life and yeah. I realize now looking back a lot of that was self-medication yeah and taking stimulants like cocaine and, and amphetamine when I was younger it didn't have the effect on me that it had on most of my mates because for them it was get up and dance and you know and, and chat you know bollocks for ages but for me it just calmed me down I would just sit yeah. there and listen to people <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I found I found that odd, and I remember in my diagnostic assessment, the psychiatrist saying, "Do do you use any substances?" And I went, I said, "I'll be honest." I said, "Yeah, I use I use cocaine and, and and cannabis." And they said, "How do you feel when you're on cocaine?" And I said, "Well, calm. I can listen." And they said, "Stimulants will work for you then, mm. because what happens is those particular substances cause dopamine release, like a massive dopamine release, and all of a sudden that lack of dopamine." 
And one of the ways that manifests itself is the kind of internal noise, the restlessness, the 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 distractibility. When you've suddenly got a lot of dopamine there, that becomes dampened down. So I was self-medicating for years, Not taking right. substances that were just quietening this bloody noise I had in my brain, which which was just so, so tiresome. Yeah. I often look back at my party days now and think now in the room, who of us were quite similar when we mm. were out partying at that late night party and think, oh God, I wonder if all of those are ADHD. Yeah. And our come downs used to be a lot worse as well. And I don't know if that's a thing, but I do look back and think, oh my God, my come down was awful. And I don't know if that's related or not. I'm going to, I'm going to make you feel violently jealous. Now I never really got come downs, to be honest. I was, I never, no, I never got, I didn't even know that the blue Tuesday or whatever it's called. Some people say that like the Tuesday after a weekend, no, I'd be fine. I'd be fine as long as I slept. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> I'd never want to stop. That's the only reason I stop partying. Uh, yeah, that that is that is that is the problem. I never do want to stop. That is a problem. <laughs> oh, okay, so let's move on to hormones, ADHD, mm. and hormones. So we had a really really good chat about you know the connection between ADHD and hormones before, and yeah. I'm just so interested in this topic because you know I think we were talking about the similarities when people start Mm. to come into their perimenopause and and menopausal symptoms in relation to ADHD. And often a lot of people are getting diagnosed during this time. Yeah. So tell us, because you've done a lot, was it like 20 years, you said? Yeah, so so my my specialism as a scientist was endocrinology and metabolism. So that's hormones and how the body handles food and, and, and energy. And so I unwittingly kind of managed to spend a lot of time learning about how hormones work and the different hormones that we have and and, and the impact they have on behavior and biological functions. And it's, it's fascinating because most people don't really consider this hormones have a hand in everything. Do you feel hungry? That's hormones. Do you feel thirsty? That's hormones. Do you feel sexy? That's hormones. Do you feel tired? That's hormones. Are you struggling to sleep? That might be hormones. Do you feel stressed? That's hormones. Have you had a change in body shape? Could be hormones. Has your hair started to, if you're if you're a man, started to go? That's hormones. Generally speaking, anything that happens in the body that's very quick, so we're talking less than a second to a few minutes, well, well no, less than a second to a few seconds, that's the nervous system. Anything that takes longer, so we're talking from minutes through to days or weeks, that's controlled by hormones. So the hormones are a little bit like neurotransmitters. They're chemicals that are released from one cell and they bind to a receptor, again, a bit like a key going into a lock on another cell and tell that cell to do something. They're little chemical emails that go from one cell to another saying, you need to do this thing. So a really good example is insulin. Insulin's a hormone. When we eat a meal and the the, the gut detects that there's glucose that causes insulin to be released that travels through the body to the muscle and the fat and the liver and it binds to the insulin receptor and tells those cells open up your glucose pores and need to get rid of this glucose so it, it does that it's a chemical message that tells the cell to do something else and therefore it's really important we've got hormone we've got so many different hormones those hormone levels change during you know day to day week to week hour to hour even for example, cortisol, the stress hormone, it's almost always highest in the morning as opposed to later on in the day. So that has a daily pattern. And then if you look at the female sex hormones, we have a roughly monthly pattern for mm-hmm. the two uh, for the two major hormones, estradiol and, and progesterone. But 
what people again probably don't understand, and this there is there are some gaps in this knowledge, is that hormones also regulate neurotransmitters. Right. Now, one thing you said was really, really powerful about perimenopause. There are two angles to this. The first is one of the reasons that many women first seek an assessment around perimenopause or menopause is because the tests for ADHD and the way in which society views ADHD is biased against women. The tests were designed in boys, specifically white boys. Mm. Educational institutions still look for hyperactive boys running around and being disruptive. And we present differently in, in children. Generally, boys with ADHD are more hyperactive and disruptive. And generally, but not always, girls are more introspective, anxious and daydreaming. So if you've got a system where the test is designed in boys and the educationalists, and it's not their folks, it's how they're trained, they're looking for boys running around. That's why girls yeah. uh, end up you know, get, not getting spotted. And because women are better at developing coping strategies, they tend to get through life until a big life event, like a pandemic or a death in the family, or perimenopause and menopause. And for a while, it wasn't really understood why perimenopause and menopause might be that trigger. But what we now know from a combination of studies in animals, studies interestingly giving menopausal women adhd medication that's women without adhd and some early-ish studies in women with adhd is that estrogen which is one of the main female sex hormones regulates dopamine levels and therefore there's we call it the three m's that's menage when periods start menstruation and menopause plus also post childbirth those periods in a, in a woman's life your sex hormones become altered and that's why if you look at things like um premenstrual dysphoria um uh, disorder pmdd or, or pms part of that the emotional side of that is because the hormones are changing the way in which our neurotransmitters work and that can change our mood that can change our ability to think about things and what's become clear is that because perimenopause i suppose is this wobble in your hormone levels and then menopause is drop off a cliff that affects the amount of dopamine there is in the brain. Mm. And because the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause cross over with ADHD in terms of mood changes in mood, brain fog, um, inability to kind of prioritize and make decisions, it becomes doubly apparent. And then women have got this dual battle. And I'm, I just feel as a man so ashamed that this is the system you have to fight to get on hrc or to even get a doctor to accept you might be perimenopausal at the yes. same time as then fighting to get an assessment for adhd mm. and i just i feel i can't i mean having seen my wife go through this exact situation of spending two years going to a gp saying i think i'm perimenopausal and just being told you're too young you're too young you're too young and it's not it's not there's no age at which you cannot no. be perimenopausal at the same time as then going to the GP and even asking to go through right to choose to get a, an assessment, but then they're not, they sent her to the local service and she had to wait two years and then change where she was going. And it's just, it's so biased and it's so challenging for women that you have this dual battle of trying to accept and adapt to the perimenopause and the menopause and get help for ADHD. Yeah. And, and I think as well, it's like, you don't know what's going on. So, you know, we often yeah. blame our hormones for a lot of things anyway, but I think, say you've got ADHD, you don't know you've got it and you don't know, mm. you're not quite sure this is perimenopause and you think, what is wrong with me? Like everything yeah. feels like, you know, you're anxious all the time and the things yeah. that were once working aren't working anymore. Your exercise yeah. routine just isn't doing the same thing. And then you're left fighting your own battle in your head and 
told by doctors that you can't be perimenopause and actually wait three years for ADHD is just yeah. really, really difficult situation to be in. And once someone is aware of, they know they've got ADHD, mm-hmm. maybe they've had their diagnosis or maybe, you know, they haven't and they can they think they're perimenopause what's the first thing like out of both just say you know because as you said both processes are quite hard what would your advice be what things should you go and get you know looked at first what was the priority do you think it's going to be individualized for everybody but if you look Mm -hmm. at the impact that both of those things have on your life and for a start both of those things are going to cause relationship issues in most people yeah and therefore, therefore it might just be pragmatically which am i most likely to get dealt with quicker so for example if you live in england you can ask for an assessment through right to choose and that means you may get an assessment within six months and not three years and therefore that's a route that people should um try and use so therefore it might be worth what i would say is try and tackle both so go if you suspect you've got adhd and suspect you're perimenopausal go to your doctor and ask for a referral by right to choose for an adhd assessment also mention the fact that you believe you're perimenopausal. Now, if you are not over the age of 50 or so and your doctor says, no, I don't think you are, we'll do a blood test and they'll do a blood test and that comes back and they say, well, no, your blood test was normal. Track all of your symptoms. There are apps. Dr. Louise Newsom, the menopause doctor, has an app where you can track your symptoms on a day-to-day basis because doctors, and I understand this, I'm not bashing GPs, they're, if you like, they're pattern recognition machines. They look for signs and symptoms and characteristics and then make a diagnosis based on that. But even if you don't fit the age kind of shape for somebody that may be perimenopausal, if you can say, here's six months worth of symptoms, I've been, this has been Mm -hmm. every day that I've been this or every month that I've been this, often that is enough evidence for them to say, well, I'll refer you to an endocrinologist and then they'll do some more advanced tests. But without that kind of evidence, if you like, if this is what I am living through, most GPs, because they are time constrained, will just rely on, we'll do a blood test while your estrogen and progesterone levels at that time on that day were normal and therefore you're not perimenopausal. Whereas they will fluctuate and also the hormones that cause those hormones to be released will fluctuate. So track all of your symptoms. And I know this, this sounds awful, but persist just just carry on you know and and go back and eventually if you keep going back a gp has to accept well there must be something if this patient is coming back so sometimes it it does take it take i I hate to have to say this it takes courage it takes resilience luckily women are fucking far more resilient than men let's be honest and (laughs) therefore if you can if you can just try and keep that record track those symptoms and and keep going back eventually and gps are getting better at this they are understanding that this is more nuanced than you have to be over a certain age track those symptoms and go back and eventually hopefully you've got a good gp they'll refer you if you if you do that and your gp doesn't change your gp simple as that because i think it's like what we suggest for similar things with an adhd diagnosis it's almost like you get this little slot the best thing you can do is come prepared. Everything written down or printed out so you can show them because it just makes their job easier. They haven't got to do the guesswork and then they won't default back to their training of doing X, Y, or Z or making decision X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Because ADHD and perimenopause or having lower estrogen levels, similar things can show up in mm-hmm. somebody. Someone with ADHD who is going through the menopause or perimenopause will have those symptoms, but they'll be more in- intensified, like more, you know, more... Yeah, they, 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 they can, stronger yeah. way than they would with someone without. Yeah, they, they, they can be. Again, we're all we're all different, and again, mm. women are better at developing coping strategies. So, for some women, 
will be that those symptoms, particularly the the changes in in mood, the changes in libido, the changes in ability to to focus on something or think about things, they can be much more amplified. In some people, it may be the first time they've ever had those symptoms. So it's all a bit of a shock. And therefore, any level of change in mood or change in ability to think or brain fog would be very profound. So a lot of it depends on how well masked you've been, because we do mask, we do hide our symptoms, particularly if we don't know we've got ADHD. And if we are very well masked and have great coping strategies, they can all start to tumble down and everything can seem kind of over the top and amplified when it comes to that combination of ADHD and and perimenopause or menopause. I wanted to go on to ask you about, we know we've got ADHD. We know that our hormones have started to become more imbalanced. So like myself, everything that was once working, you know, is not, Mm. I've been told I've got lower levels of, you know, estrogen now, really low levels. So what can we do alongside our ADHD? So now say we've got, you know, we're dealing with our ADHD. We're doing all the work around that, but things still don't feel quite right. Maybe we're getting tests done, like you said, and, you know, we're not really getting that far at the moment. So we're still in the process. What can we do to support ourselves and our hormones alongside our ADHD? It's it's a good question. The the first thing is we often get the basics wrong. And this isn't just people with ADHD. This is people in general. So we often don't get enough sleep, don't eat the right foods, Mm. don't exercise frequently enough, don't stay hydrated and don't self-care. So the the very first thing I would say is get the basics right, is is get a good sleep routine. And that can be improved if if you go to bed too late and get up too late. You can change your sleep routine because we have an adaptable sleep cycle Mm. making sure that we try and eat the right foods at the right frequencies and particularly getting exercise because exercise causes dopamine release and we know that repeated exercise can help manage symptoms Mm -hmm. but those basics really do help manage symptoms we're only talking by percentages shaving off kind of some of the the sharp edges of adhd but we don't do them in general most of us anyway i mean some of us are brilliant when it comes to our diet and exercise but most of us tend to eat beige food, processed food, because it it doesn't involve executive function to kind of shop and buy and make a recipe. And many of us struggle with engaging with exercise because we just don't find it rewarding. And 80% of people with ADHD have um, an issue with sleep. So most of us have issues with sleep, whether it's insomnia, poor sleep quality or late sleep time. Mm. So try and get the basics right, first of all. There are some things, and the evidence base isn't great on this, but estrogen is an interesting molecule. So particularly for women who were menopausal or at that late stage of perimenopause where estrogen levels are low, estrogen isn't one thing, believe it or not. Estrogen is a name that describes a collection of hormones which have the same receptor. The most abundant of these, the most common is called estradiol. That's the one that's there throughout your life. And the others tend to crop up either after childbirth or just as a metabolite. Mm. But estrogen, and actually most hormones, chemically looks like lots of things in the environment. So there are plants that contain estrogen-like compounds. These are called phytoestrogens. So if you eat tofu, for example, Mm -hmm. tofu is packed full of estrogen-like compounds. Now, if you look at the the health and longevity of people who live in the Far East, where lots of soy products and tofu, et cetera, are used, there's an argument, and there is some some weak evidence that that's partly because of their consumption of of phytoestrogens. But... It's a double-edged sword, and we've chatted about this before, is is there's also a lot of stuff in the environment that looks like estrogens. So stuff in plastics, 
for example, you may go into the shop and to try and buy a water bottle and you'll see it proudly say, this is BPA-free. Mm. BPA is, is bisphenol A, and it's a molecule that chemically looks just like estrogen. And it's used to harden plastic, but it can it can come out, it can leach out of that plastic, and it can it can bind to the estrogen receptors in the body and do things. So there are lots of things out there which can have an impact on our hormones, from things that are in cosmetics to things that are in foods to things that are in plastics and products to things that might even be in the drinking water, for example. Yeah. So it's really complicated in terms of estrogen, but particularly eating food that is rich in those types of nutrients can help a little bit. The evidence is is weak, but even after menopause, women do produce some estradiol or estrogen because the body fat converts other chemicals into it, but it's just a small amount. But if you wanted to supplement that, there are some foods which can provide you with some beneficial effects. I actually used to, this is something I used to research on. I used to, in the lab anyway, would, would take these plant estrogens and put them on cells and measure the effect they had. And they do have different effects. So there are kind of little things you can do alongside the basics. And then coaching helps some people. You can self-coach as well, identifying what your goals are and what your options are. It can be challenging, but equally, what I would say is the biggest issue I think for women when it comes to menopause, perimenopause and ADHD and trying to cope is isolation, is most women actually feel like they're the only person going through this because it's not talked about even between women. I mean, let alone with fucking men. I mean, you mention menopause to a man and they'll, they'll run screaming out of the door because they don't want to talk about women's things, but women don't often talk to women about menopause and perimenopause and definitely not about ADHD. No. So what I would say is, is to whatever resources, whatever support groups, whatever online communities there are, become part of that community, share your experience, share your story, listen to other people's stories. And what you'll realize is there is a huge army of women out there who have this dual challenge of trying to deal with menopause and perimenopause and ADHD. And lots of them will have tips, things that have worked for them, yeah. you know, or tell you that things that they struggle with. And the most important thing is you, then you won't feel alone. You're not the only person going through this. There are literally millions of women going through this. Do you know what? That is so true. That last bit, because I think it was only until I spoke to your wife, Sam, Mm. I've hadn't had any tests done yet or anything, but I knew that something was going wrong. And I think especially if you're going through an early menopause or perimenopause, yeah. you feel a bit ashamed. And what well, I did, yeah. I felt I didn't want to admit it. So I think that's so right because I only took steps forwards because your wife, Sam, mentioned it on the podcast that she had got, just gone through it. And it was that that pushed me to then open up and, and then go, start looking into it myself. And and that's that's the power of sharing stories. Yeah. And again, because we are particularly post pandemic, with lots of people still working from home or working virtually, etc., we've lost that sense of conversation. But some yeah. topics weren't talked about anyway. And Sam, to be fair, I think Sam only first realised about the, the possibility of perimenopause because there was a woman's group at work where she worked, and they did a talk on menopause and and. It completely opened her eyes because she thought she was going insane. She just yeah, thought, I, I'm going insane. My whole life's falling apart. I've got no libido. I'm not getting on with my husband. We're on the point of, of breakup. I can't do my job. I'm struggling to concentrate. I'm angry all the time. Yeah. And then she went to this this talk at a woman's group at work and just went, oh, my God, that's exactly what I'm going through. Mm. And that's why we have to have these conversations, share these stories, because there will be women out there that just feel like, 
that's them that I'm everything's falling to pieces and I don't know why and there's a reason and you can get help yeah and I think if you're ADHD especially we are known to ruminate more and try and be in that yeah. you know, negative headspace so I think it's so important community changes everything doesn't it yeah. and ADHD it really does. comes with that so there'll be loads of people out there won't there with in going through what you're going through and you can connect with them I want to go back to the plastic thing because I just want you to tell yeah. us about this really interesting thing that you told yeah. me that I couldn't believe. It's just but, the fish. Yeah, it's the fish. But <laughs> so the plastic that you're talking about. So if we use this plastic, which is on most things, so it's really hard to get away with, but and it, it, it attaches to those receptors. <laughs> yeah, the receptors. Yeah. Yeah. Firstly, what bad effect is that having? Like, what will that do? God, I love talking about hormones. Without getting too too <laughs> A complicated. A man that loves talking about hormones. I know. <laughs> When something binds to a hormone receptor, it can do three things. It mm. can activate it, i.e. make it do what it's meant to do. Yeah. It can just sit there and block it so other mm. things can't bind to it. Or it can decrease its activity. That's called negative agonism. So that actually reduces what happens in that cell. And the problem with what's in the environment, these plastics or these compounds in plastics, is they can do any one of those three things. So, for example, the most dangerous is if you have a – a breast cancer which is estrogen responsive and you are exposed to things that look like estrogen it could bind to that cancer cell and make it proliferate for example so therefore there's this whole chemical world out there of things that look like hormones but particularly estrogen so that we talked about which was fascinating this has been this has been repeated but the the the, the, the i suppose the classical study was looking at the outflow pipe from a plastics factory and seeing that what impact the chemicals which were being pumped into the the river near this plastic factory had and it was shown that actually keeping male fish that lived around this pipe in kind of a i suppose an enclosure so they're constantly exposed to these um plasticizers they turned into female fish Wow. No, no fish. No fish. Actually, depending on temperature and other factors, can sometimes switch sexes from mm. from male to female. But I think in this case, every male fish became female because they were constantly being exposed to these estrogen-like molecules, yeah. which were then literally changing their biological sex through a process over months of their body being bombarded with what it thought was estrogen. And that gives you just a little bit of insight into the, how, how impactful these yeah. these receptor modulators, they're called, uh, are. That has blown my mind. I've told so many people that story since you told me that. Like, it just blows my mind that we are, you know, around this plastic constantly and it has the power to do something like that. So, yeah. wow. Okay, so we are going to go in just a few fire questions. Firstly, we are all about ADHD Untangled trying to turn struggles into strengths with our ADHD. So what struggle do you think, you know, we spoke about earlier that you had yeah. many struggles with ADHD. What do you think you've managed to turn into a strength? It's a really good question. I haven't got a quick fire answer. I think I think motivation. I think the, sh- the struggle has mm. led to motivation to help others. The, sh- the struggle has led to you know, the, the, the issues that I had for many years, which have led to this kind of deep self-loathing that I've got. And, and, and now I accept myself and I generally do accept myself as somebody with ADHD. That struggle has led to the strength of being able to push through, not, not to the point of burnout because I do protect myself, but to push through tiredness, to push through some days where I'm not merely at my best to help other people. So it's given me motivation to help others. Yeah. 
And what gives you strength during your most challenging days? Oh, God, I've got to say my wife, haven't I? Um, and Alex to some extent as well. I've got a yeah. very small group of friends. I've managed to, to shed them all, largely for ADHD reasons. <laughs> yeah. And every day is challenging for me. My, my ADHD, we're all different, but my ADHD means that every day is chaotic, every day is challenging. Mm-hmm. Some of those days I thrive on that chaos. Some of those days I thrive on that challenge. Other days I can't engage with that, but particularly particularly over the last year i have bipolar as well and that that complicates things but particularly over the last year there have been times where i i could I just couldn't cope didn't see a future and if i didn't have a very very strong relationship with my wife and somebody who who even though she's got her own challenges is there for me that's my my strength is that i know she looks after me and i know i look after her and that that's my strength is that that bond is is what gets me through those difficult times. So wonderful. I actually saw a quote the other day saying that if someone's helping you, even though they're struggling, their sales, that is love. Yeah, oh God, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's probably the biggest form of love, yeah. to be fair. Considering mm. where you are now in your journey of helping so many people with ADHD, if you could go back, would you still choose to have ADHD, a life with or without? I mean, that's the question. Yeah, I used to say yes. I used to say absolutely in a heartbeat, but... We're doing coaching called spheres of influence. You know, there's things you can control, things you can influence, and outside of that, it's just stuff you can be concerned with. Because I can't do that, and because I'm with somebody that I love, and I'm now doing something that help, helps people, even if there was a magic button that said you can go back and be and not be neurodivergent, I wouldn't press it. And I, and I, that's with all the pain, that's with all the self-loathing, that's with all the shit I've been through. I'm in a place now where I have a purpose. I might not have had a purpose. I might not have yeah. met my wife. I might be less happy. I might be more normal in rabbit ears, but where I am now is definitely worth what I've been through. And what, that's such great evidence to show that, you know, when, throughout that growth and everything that you go through, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, isn't there? There's hope. It's it's really it's really important. This is one of the things that I get very passionate about is the fact that we are all different, and this is why I don't kind of subscribe to the ADHD is anything because no. because ADHD is and isn't a superpower. It is and isn't a disability. It is mm. and isn't a strength. It is and isn't a disorder. Depending on who you ask, for some people who are able to focus on something that's rewarding and become massively successful, but not internally kind of at their expense they will feel that it's a superpower nobody can challenge that lived experience but 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 for me it's 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 a day-to-day i have to i mean everybody lives day-to-day it's literally how time works but living day-to-day and kind of just not getting through each day but trying to, to extract joy out of each day and to try and make sure i'm being a good person each day is is kind of how i have to approach things philosophically i suppose i don't think i answered your question i've forgotten it rosie to be fair no you have you have answered it and i think you've highlighted one of the best things is is that you know adhd your your experience with your adhd no one can tell you what that is yeah absolutely superpower and that's how you see it then that's that absolutely you have to own it and what it is for you and learn what it is for you yeah well in one word how would you describe adhd if you could choose one word okay chaos for me chaos Chaos. It's yeah, chaos, yeah. But that, but it's um, not it's not about it's not a bad thing. Sometimes chaos is good, but it's definite chaos. Yeah. <laughs> and also, last words. 
you know, if someone's struggling right now with their new diagnosis and we've all, you know, you mentioned it a lot earlier in your mm. own struggles, what would you say to them and what did you need to hear in that moment when you had no idea, you know, what to do? I've got to be careful what I say because I get upset very easily, particularly when I talk about myself. What I would say to other people is you are valid. If anybody questions your ADHD, don't care who it is, if it's a family member, a loved one, a colleague, a friend, if anyone says, oh, it's trendy though, isn't it? Or oh, we're all a bit ADHD, you are valid. If they don't understand what it's like to live with ADHD, they're not qualified to tell you what it's like to live with ADHD. And if like me, you've grown up for years, trying, trying to get upset, James, if you've grown up for years hating yourself and feeling like you're less, Accept that you you're enough. You are enough. You 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 are. You have got to where you are in life, despite starting further down the ladder, despite having this neurodevelopmental disorder. You've got to where you are, and that means by default, you're a fucking fighter, and you're yeah. enough. So even if you even if you like I did for years and still do a lot, just instantly default to low self esteem and you're rubbish. Just remember, you're you're wonderful and you're beautiful. Even if you're beautifully imperfect, you're beautiful. James, that was so perfect. I know we don't use the word perfect, but it was. And I love that you said you are enough because that is what I end every single class I teach is you are enough. In fact, you are more than enough. Yeah, so true. So powerful. James, thank you. That was amazing. Thank you, mate. And tell us where we can hear more about your wonderful things that you are doing, your charity and everything. Yeah, God. So the charity is called ADHD Adult UK and the website is ADHDadult.uk and it's got the same handle on all the the uh, social medias. The podcast is the ADHD Adults and again, that's the website ADHDadults.uk and the same for social media and the podcast is on pretty much every platform. So if you want to find out more, it's a very sweary, incredibly chaotic, but <laughs> evidence-based podcast on various different aspects of ADHD. Yeah. Thank you, James. You are a hero in our community. And <laughs> Thank honestly, you, mate. So are you. you are. I am so grateful that you spent time with me and taught us so much as always. So thank you. So, so. That's much. my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to Untangled. I hope you find these podcasts as useful as I do. I always leave feeling so inspired and like I've learned so much about my ADHD. Let's get untangled and show the world what we are made of. Yeah, yeah. Hello, welcome to my world. Nice to meet you. Wish you well. Forgot your name before you said it. Cause my mind was somewhere else. And it ain't because I'm rude. I'm just genuinely confused. I'm always caught up in my feelings. Trying to navigate my mood. See, when they call it a disorder, I think that's out of order. My strength and power's paying far too much attention than I ought to. My version of peace to someone else looks like a shambles These cross wires I can handle They're trying to be me, but untangled